0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Keep Joy in Your Life. In the first half, Dale E. Miller and Gail Clegg share their addresses, A Joyful Heart and Joy Cometh in the Morning. Then in the second half, Kevin J. Worthen speaks on Enduring Joy.
1: On June 24th of this year, Laurel and I will have been married 44 years. And over these years, we've found some very helpful tools that lead toward a joyful life, even during the challenging times. And we share our experiences with you, hoping that you will be able to think on these experiences and, where appropriate, apply them to yourselves. From our experience, developing joy brings emotional rewards of inner peace and the healing of pains that can often beset you. Let's see if we can understand how this works doctrinally. Undergirding the gospel of Jesus Christ is the concept of eternal and permanent happiness. Joseph Smith stated in Doctrine in few words, happiness is the object and design of our existence. It will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. And this path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all the commandments of God. That is the essence of the religion you have embraced. The Book of Mormon contains about 150 references to joy. To quote an early reference in the Book of Mormon, Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. I'm indebted to Elder Bruce Hafen for a thought he left us in the last General Conference. So if you have problems in your life, don't assume there's something wrong with you. Struggling with those problems is at the very core of life's purpose. If you're seeing more of your weaknesses, that just might mean that you're moving near to God, not further away. Now, there's great peace of mind in that thought. Trials and tribulations are part of the formula back to God. In this mortal life, He does work within you. He is moving you into a position to face and overcome personal challenges. I have been a witness to that process many times. You are to grow your happiness here in mortality primarily by being nurtured and enlightened by the good word of God. This doctrine lays out a pathway toward happiness markedly different from that of the world. President David O. McKay clarifies a significant difference between our doctrine of happiness and of the world, and I quote, It is true that where wealth and friends and material success Make it happiness the brighter when it's already shining within. But when it's not in the heart, all outward contributions are like paint and powder on the sallow cheek, the mere semblance of the thing desired. End of quote. So we're to look primarily within ourselves to build joy. True doctrines bring joyful hearts at an intensity unknown to the world. Alma the Younger may have conveyed it best. And oh, what joy! and what marvelous light I did behold. Yea, my soul was filled with joy, as exceeding as was my pain. That's quite an emotion. Alma holds out great hope to you. There is joy to be felt exceeding the greatest of pains. He also implies that you can build for yourself high pain thresholds through understanding the Atonement. He describes how he was caught up in the great emotional pain, and I quote again, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy on me, who am in the gall of bitterness, and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. He sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't he? And he then goes on to say, And now behold, when I thought this, speaking of the teachings of Father Alma concerning the Atonement of Christ, I could remember my pains no more, yea, I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. This is a very, very practical doctrine for you to lay hold of. Alma is telling you that the Savior's Atonement holds full power to gain mercy, sufficient to completely cleanse the mind and the soul. What is profoundly crucial to you is to understand that this mercy holds sufficient power for you to achieve complete peace and healing. Many scriptural evidences demonstrate that the Atonement gives healing to both body and soul. Think on the miracles performed by the Savior, wherein He healed physical infirmities, and at the same time forgiving the repentant sinners, bringing peace to their soul. Of particular note is Alma's comment to Helam and his son. But behold, my limbs did receive their strength again, and I stood upon my feet and did manifest unto the people that I had been born of God. Both body and soul were healed in His conversion. In our day, the Lord has entrusted with His power to heal by faith and by the power of the priesthood to bring about this peace and healing. Time isn't sufficient today to name all the ingredients for building peace and healing to the soul, and certainly the power of the Atonement coupled with our true and complete conversion is the greatest of those ingredients. Allow me to mention other patterns in your lives to build joy. These patterns have greatly helped Laurel and I in our journey through life together. You always have to keep humor as a significant part of your lives. Our family has grown up with humor. Home movies attest to the joyful times, particularly at family gatherings. These moments we treasure for when we're apart. We encourage you to keep humor in your memories as a part of dealing with the everyday vicissitudes of life. One caution. Don't ever use humor at the expense of someone else. I learned that early in life to my constant remorse. To tell a story quickly, my growing up years were in Southern California. My parents socially traveled with the then elite of Hollywood. While I had goodly parents, they took on the social customs of the world for a time. When I was about seven years of age, my father planned a birthday celebration for my mother. He invited the important people of Hollywood. Particularly, a number of the major stars of that day. My older brother and I came into the kitchen during preparations. We saw champagne poured in the glasses to toast my mother. I said to my brother, This is not right. When no one was looking, <clears throat> we poured the champagne down the sink and filled the glasses with vinegar. In my moment of self-righteousness, I thought we needed to teach an object lesson. (laughs) Besides, we thought it would be funny to watch everyone swallowing vinegar at the same time. (laughs) Well, it was a big mistake. I hadn't considered that my older brother could run faster than I could. (laughs) You may not know that there is occasional humor mixed into our work at church headquarters. The general authorities and officers are typically happy, optimistic people. And humor just sometimes shows up in unexpected ways. Let me recommend another ingredient to joy. Uplifting music is designed to bring peace into your life. Another lesson about happiness occurred while serving as mission president in Venezuela. The assistants came in one day to my office and said, President, there are two types of missionaries in this mission. Those who use most of their week preparing for P-Day and those who use their P-Day to plan their week. There's a message here. Those of the returned missionaries that are here know what I am talking about. We notice a great difference between those who come into the mission prepared to work hard because they've had experiences of working hard. They gain great satisfaction in life from accomplishing worthwhile goals. President David O. McKay comments on the importance of work in bringing happiness, and I quote, One source of happiness springs from the realization of having accomplished something worthwhile. The accomplishing of a fixed determination in the quest for truth and nobility of soul always produces happiness, end of quote. That is why effective missionaries do not want to leave their missions and always look back on mission life with satisfaction. When you look back from the other side of the veil, do you think you will feel likewise? Remember President McKay's counsel the accomplishment of a fixed determination in the quest for truth and nobility of soul always produces happiness. Has it occurred to you that sincere prayer brings discovery and that discovery brings joy? Of all the challenging times in our life, I think Laurel would agree with me that our three-year mission in Venezuela would count high on the list of challenges. We had our young family with us, their happiness and well-being were an ever-important issue, balanced with everyday challenges of the missionaries, the culture, the language, illness, crime, political turmoil, and so forth. I remember so well on a particular day on the island country of Trinidad and Tobago. We were trying to gain official recognition of the church. And after many failed attempts, I remember falling to my knees in my hotel room at Port of Spain, the capital. I poured out my heart to God, saying, Heavenly Father, I cannot do this alone. I remember a feeling wave of peace coming over me. A voice came to my mind, saying, Be patient. I will open a pathway to establish my Church here. The Spirit spoke to my mind, bringing peace and consolation to my heart and to my mind. Prayer indeed brings peace, healing, and a sense of joy. Please consider prayer as an active and open channel to a loving and listening Heavenly Father. It helps at times to have the image of His countenance before you and having the Savior at His side advocating on your behalf. He does listen. I testify of that. He always listens to the prayers of the heart. Peace and joy come from pondering scripture. You can sense the joy that prophets describe within themselves as you read. Again, there are over 150 references to joy in the Book of Mormon, and many of it comes through the expressions of the prophets. It's a marvelous thing to contemplate the joys coming to Joseph Smith as revelation after revelation poured upon him that came from heaven. What joy he expressed in receiving visits from the Savior and the great prophets of old. Just one example. In his life, can give you a flavor. And I quote Immediately on our coming out of the waters of baptism, we had been baptized and we experienced great and glorious blessings from our Heavenly Father. No sooner had I baptized Oliver Cowdery than the Holy Ghost fell upon him, and he stood up and prophesied many things which should shortly come to pass. And again, as soon as I had been baptized by him, I also had the spirit of prophecy. When standing up, I prophesied. Concerning the rise of this church and many other things connected with the church and the generation of the children of men. We were filled with the Holy Ghost and rejoiced in the God of our salvation. End of quote. President Spencer W. Kimball also commented on the importance of the scriptures as a source of joy. If I find that when I get casual in my relationships with divinity and when it seems that no divine ear is listening, I am far, far away. If I immerse myself in the scriptures, the distance narrows and the spirituality returns. I find myself loving more intensely those whom I must love with all my heart, mind, and strength. And loving them more, I find it easier to abide their counsel. End of quote. There's a great spiritual enrichment in pondering scripture, not just reading, not just studying, but truly pondering. When you get it fixed right in your minds, your hearts begin to open up to feelings that bring lasting joy. It also stores up great knowledge, useful throughout the solving of everyday problems that vex you. They help keep a pure conduit to heaven, allowing joy to replace indecision and lack of direction. It is a discipline to learn early in life and insist on maintaining throughout. Now let's talk about love. What seems like such a short time ago, Laurel and I were sitting in your seats listening to similar speakers. We were engaged to be married and very much in love. Over the years we have learned much more about love. We have been learning that being in love is a wonderfully blissful state. But eternal companionship is much, much more. The term being in love uses the word love as a noun. The other meaning of love is in its condition as an action verb. To love and be love transcends being in love. Scripture is quite clear on that topic. If ye love me, keep my commandments. While you may love, have love toward the Savior, the feeling of love is not sufficient. You must demonstrate your love in a contractual way. It is the giving of that love that brings true and lasting joy. The same is true in marriage. Paul's counsel to the saints in the Ephesians underscores the principle, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the Church, and gave himself for it. And here Paul makes an important analogy, that he, the Savior, might present it to himself, a glorious Church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Loving others means helping them become better. Lasting joy comes from combining the being in love with the loving behavior. In the words of C.S. Lewis, love is distinct from being in love. It's not merely a feeling. It's a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by, in Christian marriages, the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep that promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. Love is both a noun and a verb in the celestial kingdom. The closing words of Savior in His intercessory prayer sum it up best. That the love wherewith thou dost love me may be in them, and I in them. Now let's return to the earlier statement that certainly the power of the Atonement coupled with our true and full conversion, is the greatest ingredient to finding joy. Our baptism does not necessarily indicate conversion. Having a testimony does not necessarily indicate conversion. And I quote from President Marion G. Romney's talk, which was given in October of 1963, for he says, As used in the scriptures, converted generally implies not merely mental acceptance of Jesus and his teachings— but also a motivating faith in him and his gospel—a faith which works a transformation, an actual change in one's understanding of life's meaning and his allegiance to God in interest, in thought, and in conduct. While conversion may be accomplished in stages, one is not really converted in the full sense of the term unless and until he is, at heart, a new person. Born again is the scriptural term. One who walks in a newness of life is converted. And President Romney continues, Conversion is the fruit of or the reward for repentance and obedience. His spirit is healed. Sometimes there is also a healing of the nervous system or of the mind, but always the remittance of sins, which attends divine forgiveness, heals the spirit. This accounts for the fact that in the scriptures, conversion and healing are repeatedly associated. Then President Romney quotes Doctrine and Covenants, section 112, verses 12 and 13. And after their temptations and much tribulation, behold, I, the Lord, will feel after them. And if they harden not their hearts and stiffen not their necks against me, they shall be converted, and I will heal them. He continues, Somebody recently asked how one could know When he is converted, and the answer is simple. He may be assured of it when by the power of the Holy Ghost his soul is healed. When this occurs, he will recognize it by the way he feels, for he will feel as the people of Benjamin felt when they received remission of sins. The record says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and they were filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins and having peace and conscience. And President Romney then concludes by saying, Getting people's spirits healed through conversion is the only way they can be healed. I know this is unpopular doctrine and a slow way to solve problems of men and nations. Nevertheless, I know and solemnly witness that there is no other means by which the sin-sick soul of men can be healed or for a troubled world to find peace." End of quote. I add a humble second witness to the truths that President Romney teaches. True and full conversion is the only way to complete peace and healing in the soul. It is the balm of Gilead, the ultimate font of joy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from Dale E. Miller. And now we'll hear from Gail Clegg for her address, Joy Cometh in the Morning.
2: Today I would like to develop the topic of finding and teaching joy to our children. So often the joy is only realized in hindsight, in subtle surprise interactions, or through simple conversations each of us has had with our children, with ourselves, and with our Heavenly Father. In a myriad ways daily, each of us is surprised by joy. Our lives are a combination of disappointment, loneliness, and sorrow interspersed with memorable, joyful moments. We can feel overwhelmed and discouraged and happy all in the same hour. Joy and sorrow are twin-born as reflected in the scriptures from Psalms. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. I would like to think about some of the ways that happens for each of us. A dear friend and I talked about her struggles with her grown children. She said that one morning she walked along the lakefront near her home in downtown Chicago. She was thinking about her children, her busy schedule, and also a new church calling. She was also thinking about a gospel lesson taught in Relief Society the previous day. The lesson was on joy. She began to wonder when she had last felt real joy in her life. She couldn't remember a recent time when she had not felt burdened and at wit's end. As she walked, she began to pray that she might remember when Joy had lifted her spirit. No sooner had this prayer formed in her mind that the sun burst from behind the overcasting clouds in the sky to light up the lakefront and the beautiful Chicago skyline. As the sun lit the day, she experienced a deep and sudden affirmation that she was loved. That awareness gave her the power to cope with the problems at hand. Joy came quietly on a gray fall morning in Chicago to Mary. Jesus Christ came into this world to not only suffer for our sins, but he also came to take upon himself our struggles and pain. And he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. He will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. Why did he do this? That his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, how to succor his people, according to their infirmities. He knows how we struggle. He knows how we feel. And he knows how to send his love and comfort. And he will do this as often as we are in a position to receive those messages. Joy is in knowing he loves us and in seeking his help. Then we can experience those exquisite moments of joy encircled in the arms of his love. As mothers, we raise our children to one day become worthy and righteous parents. Our little daughters cuddle and care for dolls. We catch them mothering—sometimes with our very own words. Now that can be embarrassing. They can't wait to become mothers. I have four lovely daughters. All of them pursued professional careers at the university level, but their one great desire was to become mothers. Imagine the devastation through our family when one of our daughters was told after years and years of medical procedures that she would not be able to bear children. I remember well that Easter morning when the last procedure failed and the diagnosis was given that she and her husband would be childless. My husband and I felt our own hearts breaking. We had been to the temple earlier and felt such love and confidence that this sweet daughter and her dear husband would have a family, so the contrary news that day was difficult. Easter seemed tainted. Our belief had not changed nor been shaken, but our joy in the magnificent patterns of seasons and the glory of rebirth in spring buds and blossoms had temporarily drained away. Soon after that dismal Easter Sunday, armed with a sweet reassurance from the temple, our daughter and son-in-law began the adoption process. Later we were to find out that a courageous, unmarried young girl was also struggling with a difficult decision about what to do with her pregnancy. At the same time, we were in the temple praying for a child. This young girl felt an answer to her prayers. She knew she would be giving her baby, the gift of both a mother and a father who were sealed in a temple of the Lord. She knew she could be a wonderful mother. But she unselfishly decided that was not enough for this little one she was carrying. Our daughter and son-in-law now have two adopted children. Joy comes in waiting patiently on the Lord and trusting in the Lord's own patterns for fulfilling promises. We don't know how the answers will come to our prayers, but the Lord does, and His comfort is joy in the morning. Some months ago another one of our daughters wanted to make and keep a commitment to read her scriptures daily. She heard a motivational and inspired speaker from an earlier women's conference say that just having them opened in a conspicuous place would be an impetus for keeping this kind of a goal and a wonderful example for her children. She began reading in the Book of Mormon and after some days was in 2 Nephi Chapter 11 pondering Jacob's testimony of his Redeemer. She left her scriptures open right on the end table by the couch, basking in the joy of reading the scriptures. Consistently thanking in her heart that speaker who gave such good advice. She went to the laundry room and began sorting and loading the wash when her four year old came running to find his mom carrying the entire chapter 11 of Nephi in his hands. This is it right here. He knew what his 16 month old sister had done was of grave importance to his mother, and that's why he reacted so quickly, but not quickly enough. Now, what do you do to teach a 16-month-old not to tear up scriptures? Nothing, except put them in a spot where this won't be a possibility in the future. Did my daughter have good intentions? Yes. Was she trying to put into practice basic gospel habits? Yes. Was she trying to let her children see her reading the scriptures? Yes. Why is it so hard to do the right thing, she asked me in a conversation later that week. She told me of all the places most marked in her scriptures, This right here was the chapter—that is, before the baby ripped them out of her scriptures. We talked about other attempts at keeping the commandments and all the things that can happen to impede our efforts. Think about going to the temple regularly. If a tire is going to go flat, it happens then. We both decided that the best we can do is to adjust and just keep trying to live each and every commandment. I don't think that it is the plan to have righteous intentions and desires be fulfilled easily or without obstacle. But when we know the restored gospel of Jesus Christ and the blessings of living it are our focus, joy comes. Well, Our conversation ended in a happy place, thinking about diligent four-year-old Logan, who at least knew how important the scriptures were to his mom. Now that counts for lots. The moment of the incident was painful to Tina. But after time, we could talk, we could laugh, we found ourselves surprised by joy. Joy is a gift from God. Thinking back to Emily crying right beside Ella and acknowledging her own emotions allowed a sweet moment. Why? Because Emily did not try to control or force perfection in a two year old or in her own vulnerable self. The result was a joyful moment, a gift from God, a gift from the Holy Ghost. Becoming a joyful mother of children is what we are about, and making us sure our days have as many joyful moments as possible is a righteous goal. The ripping apart of Chapter 11 by Little Ashlyn was a painful experience for a mother, but a conversation with someone who loved her and understood her and had experienced similar situations helped. Conversations with loved ones, friends, and most importantly, Heavenly Father, help us find joy. Think about learning a new skill. For me this was learning how to use a computer in my fifties. I learned in the mission field when it became a necessity. Our numbers of missionaries dropped so dramatically when the visas to enter Portugal became a challenge that the only answer to having enough missionaries in the field to preach the gospel was to put me right into the mission office. My skill level on the computer increased dramatically with each new task I had to assume. Maybe we shouldn't whine about life becoming too hard. Maybe we are being given new opportunities to move to higher skill levels. I can now send documents with attachments highlighted, edited, and so forth. Remember, I couldn't even turn a computer on a few years before. In our parenting with every child we add to the mix in our family, the skill level of our mothering goes up a notch. And just as the difficulty of using a computer increases with new technical capabilities, so every obstacle you successfully overcome builds your ability to parent. The parenting challenge escalates as you safely navigate through the childhood years to arrive at the ultimate test of living with teenagers. If you keep learning and don't give up, you will get better and better. And then before you realize it, your teenagers turn into wives and husbands, mothers and fathers, and at the very same time, your own parents who have looked forward to those golden years are finding them laced with lead. As I was almost finished with this talk, a call came from a daughter telling us that my mother, 85 years old, had fallen and broken her hip. Mom was in an ambulance and on her way to the hospital, and my father, whose short-term memory has disappeared, was with some kind strangers. Mom and Dad were in Southern California for the winter, far from family members. My husband and I were with a daughter for the blessing of her newest baby in Northern California. We quickly rented a car and started driving. We talked by cell phone all the way during the six hour drive to my father, his Samaritan helpers, and my mother in the hospital waiting for x rays. Upon arriving, we found dad with a kind couple from the ward who just happened to be the Relief Society president and former bishop. How relieved we were as they said dad was doing well and had related in considerable detail his sweet, two-year courtship with my mother before their marriage. My husband stayed with my father, and I drove immediately to the hospital. I found Mother alone and in so much pain, but all she could talk about was her dear companion of 65 years. I spent my days and nights with my mother coordinating two surgeries, transfusions, and reactions to medicine. My husband spent his days and nights with my father, reassuring him over and over, that his little Lily would be all right. The transfer after a six-day hospital stay to the rehab center was difficult, and the drive home to Salt Lake with my father, without my mother, was even more difficult. But as we prayed for direction and help, it came in surprising ways. Lisa, our daughter, said, Mom, we will pack up the four children and come, and they did. Lisa's strong and capable husband helped my mother return to Salt Lake City on the airplane so she could rehabilitate closer to family. Help came as we prayed with Dad and saw the anxiety disappear even before the Amen was uttered. Help came as my husband and father gave a blessing of healing and comfort to Mother. I have thought over and over again, Why is life so complicated? Why is there so much unearned suffering? Consequences are one thing, but old age is another. Who earns that? In our heart of hearts, we think we should be immune to some of our deepest heartache because we are trying so hard and contributing so much. Sometimes I think suffering is the answer to that arrogance. Do we, any of us, search for food and water and firewood every day in a parched desert? Or safety in a crime-infested, concrete inner city? We do not. In some ways these trials reinforce how truly blessed our lives really are. Hospitals with tubes and tests and insurance tangles and all the things that kill the spirit outright while trying to heal the body are nevertheless a gift to us. Joy comes through misery and heartache, through having a husband to love and protect your father through the night while you sit in a chair accumulating two days of body odor. It comes it comes in the memories of childhood and your admiration for a remarkable, resilient mother whose caretaking you only now begin to comprehend. Joy comes in sharing these things with your children who have learned so much about making and keeping commitments from grandparents. The joy is not in arriving but in getting better each time a new challenge is thrown your way. Each time you learn in a new situation. Joy comes not from having a pain-free life, but from conquering the obstacles, even when they are painful. If our children can see us enduring well and finding laughter, humor, joy in the process, I think some of this will rub off on them. It will take many conversations, sometimes late at night, early in the morning, and all the times in between, but it is worth it. And as was prayed for in the temple dedication at Kirtland, We too can pray that Heavenly Father will send us forth from our homes, armed with His power and with His name upon us, and with His glory round about us, and strengthened by His angels. We pray through the night, and joy comes in the morning, in the form of a new perspective, a new energy, and resolve, a conversation with someone who validates or mentors, or just remembers. Joy comes in the form of the natural world, bursting with sunlight, or patterning resurrection, and rebirth, just as we imagine birth will not be part of our life's experience. Joy comes through crying with the toddler, whose tantrum pushed us to the limit in the first place. Joy comes in cyclical patterns and seasons. I find more humor in my daughter dealing with a tantrum than in my own tears of frustration, wanting to help my father understand I have not kidnapped him. Joy comes through our own gratitude for the Spirit of the Holy Ghost and teaching and testify of the plan of salvation. Of this I joyfully testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Keep Joy in Your Life. We've just heard from Gail Clegg. After the break, we'll return with Kevin J. Worthen for Enduring Joy. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Keep Joy in Your Life. Next is Kevin J. Worthen, president of Brigham Young University at the time of this address, titled Enduring Joy. Now during this
3: last October General Conference, two members of the Quorum of the Twelve, Elder D. Todd Christofferson and Elder Neil L. Anderson, Shared the exact same quote from a talk given by President Russell M. Nelson in the October 2016 General Conference when President Nelson was serving as President of the Quorum of the Twelve. Although it's always good to follow the counsel of prophets, seers, and revelators, I've learned to pay particular attention to those instances in which more than one of them focuses on the same topic, or as in this case, the exact same words at the same time. So I decided to reread President Nelson's talk. My desire to carefully reread President Nelson's 2016 talk increased when I noted that Elder Del G. Renlund also cited that same talk in his October General Conference address just this past months ago. Clearly, these brethren had been reading President Nelson's October 2016 talk. Clearly, I thought to myself, I should do the same. President Nelson opened that October 2016 talk by stating that he was going to discuss quote a principle that is key to our spiritual survival. I thought no wonder elders Christofferson, Anderson and Renlund referenced the talk. President Nelson then upped the ante by adding quote it is a principle that will only become more important as the tragedies and travesties around us increase. Now he had my full attention. A principle that is key to our spiritual survival and one that will only become more important as our challenges increase? What was that principle? President Nelson introduced the principle by reviewing the life of Lehi, as recorded in the Book of Mormon. Lehi was persecuted, mocked, and even physically threatened because of his belief in God and his desire to keep God's commandments. He left behind the comforts of home to go out into an unknown wilderness because of his commitment to God. He suffered hunger and other deprivations. Some of his sons rebelled against him. His was not an easy life. President Nelson summed up Lehi's life in terms that may sound a bit like your life at times. Clearly, President Nelson said, Lehi knew opposition, anxiety, heartache, pain, disappointment, and sorrow. President Nelson then noted that in these trying circumstances, Lehi taught a principle of spiritual survival when he declared boldly and without reservation a principle as revealed by the Lord, men and women are that they might have joy. There it is. Joy is the key to our spiritual survival in the trying times in which we live as well as the trying times that lie ahead of us. When we experience opposition, anxiety, heartache, pain, disappointment, and sorrow—something all of us are likely to face in this coming year—how are we to survive? By tapping into the power of joy. I believe we often underestimate the importance of the concept of joy. Without much thought, we sometimes casually wish others a joyous holiday season or invite them to spread joy. But I'm not sure we fully appreciate how central joy is to God's plan for us. And it seems that our current leaders from President Nelson on down are now trying to draw our attention to it. In fact, according to a word search on the Gospel Library app, the word joy was used 149 times in this most recent general conference, more than double the 65 references in the April 2019 conference, and nearly triple the 54 references in the October 2018 general conference. To use the current social media parlance, joy was clearly trending in this last General Conference. And the trend goes beyond General Conference. The most recent issue, the December 2019 issue of the Ensign and Liahona magazines, focused on the concept of joy. Elder Patrick Kieron a General Authority 7D quoted President Nelson's talk on joy in his remarks at the First Presidency Christmas devotional just four weeks ago as did Sister Jean Bingham in her recent BYU devotional talk here in December at the Marriott Center. Add to that Elder David A. Bednar's BYU devotional last December, which focused on joy. And it is clear that joy is one of the principles that current Church leaders want us to consider more deeply. So my request for this coming year is that we focus more on joy, that we seek to understand it better and enjoy it more. That we come to view it not just as a mental or emotional concept or feeling of comfort, but as a principle of power, power to survive and thrive spiritually and otherwise, that we come to experience what President Nelson has called enduring joy. So we begin by asking, what is joy? That's not a simple question. In fact, it's a question which philosophers, psychologists, songwriters, theologians, and poets have explored and debated for millennia. Part of the difficulty is that language is a little imprecise and ultimately inadequate to capture the concept fully. For example, some distinguish happiness from joy, while in the scriptures and prophetic teachings those terms are sometimes used interchangeably. However, this much seems clear from Revelation. Joy is not merely a temporary emotion, but rather a more permanent and constant condition. As stated in the guides of the scriptures, Joy is a condition of great happiness coming from righteous living. It is not some momentary sensation of rejoicing, but a condition, a state of being. King Benjamin described it this way, Consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven, that thereby they may dwell with God in a state— of never-ending happiness. President Dowin H. Oakes explained it this way, Joy is the ultimate sensation of well-being. It comes from being complete and in harmony with our Creator and His eternal laws. The opposite of joy is misery. Misery is more than unhappiness, sorrow, or suffering. Misery is the ultimate state of disharmony with God and His laws. Joy and misery are eternal emotions whose ultimate extent we are not likely to experience immortality. In this life we have some mortal simulations which we call happiness or pleasure and unhappiness or pain. Notice three common elements in King Benjamin and Elder Oaks' descriptions. One, in its fullness joy is a condition or state of being. It is a constant. Two, it comes from living in harmony with God's laws, from keeping His commandments. And three, we may not experience it fully in this life. Indeed, because of the limits of our mortal bodies and finite minds, we likely cannot even fully describe or understand this condition. As President Nelson noted, God quote, "...offers an intensity, depth, and breadth of joy that defy human logic or mortal comprehension." In fact, the scriptures indicate that we can completely experience a fullness of joy only after Resurrection when our perfected bodies and spirits are inseparably connected. Thus joy is in one sense a description of our ultimate destiny. Joy is at the center of God's plan for us. The Book of Job records that when that plan was presented to us in the pre-mortal existence, we shouted for joy. Note that the scripture indicates we shouted for joy and not with joy. It may well be that we were not just generally rejoicing at the announcement of the plan but rather that we were celebrating the concept of joy itself, shouting for joy—overwhelmed at the beauty and depth of the concept of joy and our realization that we too might enter into that state of being that our Heavenly Parents enjoyed. As Joseph Smith put it, joy, or happiness, is the object and design of our existence. Joy is the very purpose for which we and everything else in the cosmos were created. Thus it should be no surprise that it was the good tidings of great joy that the angels pronounced to the shepherds at Jesus' birth. However, just because we may not completely experience that fullness of joy in this life, it does not mean that we are without joy in the world and have to wait to the next life. Adam and Eve both recognized that their choices in the Garden of Eden made it possible that in this life we shall have joy—even the joy of our redemption. Indeed, one of the purposes of this life is to develop our capacity for joy. And the extent to which we do that will impact the degree to which we will experience joy both in this life and even more in the world to come. As Elder Jack Goslin once observed, our joy in God's kingdom will be a natural extension of the happiness we cultivate in this life. Thus Moroni taught that our level of joy does not automatically change with death. When the judgment comes, he wrote, He that is happy shall be happy still, and he that is unhappy shall be unhappy still. Thus, even though we may not experience a complete fullness of joy until the next life, it is very much in our interest to do what we can to experience all the joy we can in this life now, both because it will make our current lives better and because it will better prepare us for our ultimate destiny—to experience the fullness of joy that God wants to share with us. So how do we do that? How can we cultivate more joy in our lives now and thereby increase our capacity to experience joy in the next life? Let me share six suggestions. First, we need to recognize and constantly remember that our ability to have joy in this life and in the eternities is not dependent on external circumstances. As President Nelson so eloquently put it, the joy we feel has little to do with the circumstances of our lives and everything to do with the focus of our lives. When the focus of our lives is on God's plan of salvation and Jesus Christ and His gospel, we can feel joy regardless of what is happening or not happening in our lives. Now, this is the quote that Elders Christofferson and Anderson cited in their most recent General Conference talks. This is the quote that Elder Kieran shared in the Christmas devotional and that Sister Bingham shared in her most recent BYU devotional last month. It is so contrary to what many in the world think, and that erroneous thinking so diverts us from joy that it bears repeating. The joy we feel has little to do with the circumstances of our lives and everything to do with the focus of our lives. When the focus of our lives is on God's plan of salvation and Jesus Christ and His gospel, we can feel joy regardless of what is happening or not happening in our lives. This is not a mere abstract concept. It is to be taken literally. President Nelson made this clear. For example, he said, It doesn't seem possible to feel joy when your child suffers from an incurable illness, or when you lose your job, or when your spouse betrays you. Yet that is precisely the joy that the Savior offers. His joy is constant. This is what President Nelson invites us and all the world to experience—what he calls enduring joy—joy that can exist even when we fail a test, feel rejected, or face ridicule. It is a joy that does not need to wait until midterms, finals, or any other unpleasant task is over before we feel it. We can enjoy it now. True joy, even the somewhat diluted but still overwhelming brand that we can experience in this life, transcends our circumstances. So don't wait for your circumstances to change before experiencing an increase of joy. Draw on the power of joy in every situation, even in that boring chemistry class. Second, we should recognize and remember that enduring joy—constant joy—does not mean uninterrupted bliss and a life free of challenges. Suffering and adversity are part of the eternal plan, a part of the process by which we come to develop enduring joy. Joy helps us transcend temporary trials. It does not eliminate them from our lives. As Elder Lawrence Corbridge recently noted, suffering and joy are not incompatible, but essential companions. You can suffer and never know joy, but you can't have joy without suffering. Even God, who is the very essence of joy, experiences sorrow. As recorded in Moses chapter 7, God weeps, over the wrong choices of his children and over their resulting unnecessary sufferings. But at the very same time, he comforts those who join in that sorrow by instructing them to lift up your heart and be glad, because those who embrace his plan, he says, shall come forth with songs of everlasting joy. So don't let Satan fool you into thinking that you are failing in your quest for joy because you have tough days. All of us do. Satan wants us to be miserable like unto him, and one way he strives to do that is by discouraging us into thinking that the challenges and difficulties we experience are the result of our own inadequacies and prove that we are not worthy of joy. But many of life's events are beyond our control. We may struggle with mental health issues or be radically affected by the inadvertent or even intentional misdeeds of others or by just the vicissitudes of life. If so, we should not blame ourselves or give up on ourselves or think ourselves beyond God's reach or beyond experiencing joy. Instead, we should recognize that with the Savior's help, we can still experience joy even in the midst of our afflictions. As President Nelson explained, because of Christ, we can feel joy even while having a bad day, a bad week, or even a bad year. When you experience the inevitable challenges that lie ahead in this coming year, believe in God and believe that He is concerned for you individually and wants you to have joy. He will weep with you, even as He bids you to lift up your heart and be glad. And when you are struggling, don't overlook the positive impact that you can have on others, even while you are feeling inadequate if you are filled with joy. You are probably doing much better at this than you think, and others around you are uplifted even when you are struggling inwardly. I often meet with distinguished visitors to campus. Many of them are struck by the joy they feel radiating from the students on campus. They labor to describe what they feel as they mingle with students, and they search for words to explain why they feel it. One such visitor asked me if we had a happiness initiative on campus. A happiness initiative, I said. She said, yeah, everyone's so happy. What are you doing? I responded that we did not have a happiness initiative, that it was just the natural disposition of our students. Now, I'm sure that not every student this visitor met that day was having the best day of his or her life. Some, I'm sure, were struggling, yet they still radiated joy that uplifted this visitor and many others. I realized later, by the way, that I'd missed a wonderful missionary opportunity. When I was asked if we had a happiness initiative, I should have said yes. It is called the plan of happiness. Would you like to learn more about it? (laughs) I've repented. I'll do better next time. (laughs) That leads to my third suggestion. Recognize and remember that true joy, enduring joy, the joy that many visitors to this campus sense, ultimately comes only through keeping God's commandments. King Benjamin indicated that joy describes the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. Indeed, the commandments are the guidelines or the requirements for experiencing enduring joy. As Joseph Smith explained, happiness is the object and design of our existence and will be the end thereof if if we pursue the path that leads to it. And this path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all the commandments of God. It is only when we live in accordance with celestial law that we are able to experience celestial joy. As the eighty-eighth section of the Doctrine and Covenants makes clear, for he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory or celestial joy. And one of those commandments is to love our neighbors and to demonstrate that love through serving them, whether it be through formal ministering assignments or just simple deeds of kindness for a roommate or a stranger. Focusing on the well-being of others rather than ourselves increases our joy regardless of our external circumstances. As Elder Goslin once observed, one key to maintaining your happiness in spite of adversity is to follow Christ's commandment to lose our lives for the sake of others. It is concern for the well-being of others that gives God joy. It is in following him and his example that we will experience that same fullness of joy. President Nelson summed up the connection between joy and keeping the commandments with this very practical but powerful observation. Every time we nurture our spouse and guide our children, every time we forgive someone or ask for forgiveness, we can feel joy. Every day that you and I choose to live celestial laws, every day that we keep our covenants and help others to do the same, joy will be ours. Fourth, because we will not in our mortal state keep the commandments perfectly, repentance is a critical part of experiencing enduring joy. Many in the world and too many in the Church view repentance as an unpleasant, even dreaded, process, confusing the consequences of failing to repent with repentance itself. However, as Elder D. Todd Christofferson explained, just the opposite is true. When prophets come crying repentance, some say it throws cold water on the party. But in reality, the prophetic call should be received with joy. Repentance is a divine gift— And there should be a smile on our faces when we speak of it. Rather than interrupting the celebration, the gift of repentance is the cause for true celebration. One state president wisely observed that if we really understood the doctrine of repentance, we would run to repent. Reflecting this same understanding, one of my Church colleagues confided in me one day that one of his goals in life was to be in the Repentance Hall of Fame. That's a good goal. That does not mean that repentance is easy or that it should be done casually. To repent from sin is not easy, President Nelson has taught, but the prize is worth the price. Repentance always stretches our souls, sometimes beyond what we think we can stand, as Alma the Younger discovered. But the joy Alma felt as a result of his repentance was so great that once he had experienced it, he labored without ceasing that he might bring other souls unto repentance— that he might bring them to taste of the exceeding joy of which he did taste. So if we want to experience joy, we need to repent, to change, to be better, and to even repent joyfully. Because, as President Nelson observed, when we choose to repent, we choose to receive joy, the joy of redemption. Fifth, we need to recognize and remember that joy is a principle of power, Joy is not just a reward for a lifetime effort to follow God's commandments and to repent when we fail. Joy can increase our ability to stay on the covenant path that leads to enduring joy, give us the power to do things we might not otherwise be able to accomplish. As President Nelson explained, joy is powerful, and focusing on joy brings God's power into our lives. As proof of this truth, President Nelson pointed to the example of the Savior, who, as the scripture said, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Think of that, President Nelson stated. In order for him to endure the most excruciating experience ever endured on earth, our Savior focused on joy. Similarly, we can bring God's power into our lives by focusing on joy. As President Nelson said, if we focus on the joy that will come to us or to those we love, What can we endure that presently seems overwhelming, painful, scary, unfair, or simply impossible? What repenting will then be possible? What weakness will become a strength? What chastening will become a blessing? What disappointments, even tragedies, will turn to our good? And what challenging service to the Lord will we be able to give? Sixth and finally, we need to recognize and constantly remember that all of this is possible only because of Jesus Christ. How can we claim joy? President Nelson asked in summing it up. We can start by looking unto Jesus in every thought. I bear my solemn witness that Christ lives, and because He lives, we can in the world to come and in this world experience the fullness of joy that is part of our eternal destiny, if we so choose. And in this life we can, through joy, survive and flourish spiritually. May we more fully experience the power of joy in this coming year, is my prayer, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Keep Joy in Your Life, with thoughts from Dale E. Miller, Gail Clegg, and Kevin J. Worthen. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.